Hi, everyone, and welcome to our next weekly show of Bible Ask Live, where we answer your Bible questions right now, live on our show. I'm Tina, your host, along with my other hosts, with the hostess, with the mostest, <laughs> Jay and Wendy. You want to say hi? Hi. Hello. And we are so excited to get to answer some great questions that came in this week. Uh, we just want to remind you that, yes, our show is live. So if you have any questions or comments that you want addressed now here um, during this time, feel free to drop them down in the comment section on, on Facebook, YouTube, and Twitch. So we're so excited again to answer your questions and hear what you guys have to say. And be sure to um, tell us who you are, where you're from, and give a shout out and a hi. Uh, we'd love to hear from you. And uh, before we get started, we actually have two quick announcements. And we just want to um, remind everyone that Bible Ask is expanding. Um, BibleAsk.org is our main website. And we've actually been um, answering Bible questions. Um, we have a library of thousands of questions we've answered. And we're actually expanding into other languages. We've gone into French, Arabic, and even Hindi. And right now, we're hoping to expand into Spanish. So if you feel moved by this, um, and you want to help support this project, uh, go to BibleAsk.org and um, click in the donate section to help fund this new project. Uh, we're also hoping to create a Bible um, a search engine within Bible Ask. So basically, when we have our answers on our website, that you can go directly into the Bible. You don't have to go to another site. It'll just make things easier for you. And um, that's what we want to do. We want to be able to answer your Bible questions as efficiently as possible. So again, if you feel moved to help support us in this project, we'd love to have your support. Uh, now, before we get started with our questions and answers, um, Jay or Wendy, do you want to start us off with a word of prayer? Sure. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for uh, this chance to come together and to answer these questions, to share your word and your love with people. And we ask that you will uh, speak through us and uh, give us the right answers, the right words to say, and uh, help us to connect your, uh, your people with your message. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 Thank you, Wendy. So, Wendy, any questions? Yes, let's go ahead and dive into our first one. All right, the first question, and I am sorry if I mispronounce your name, but I think it's Shuob, says, is Jesus God and is God perfect? So I'll take a shot at that one first. And that's a great question, probably one of the most important questions or, well, it's a couple of questions, but I say, especially is Jesus God, one of the most important questions that we can ask. And for people of the Christian faith, that's part of the core Christian creed. But it's good to not just take it for granted. What does the Bible say about it? So my favorite verse, or one of my favorite verses probably in the entire Bible, and it's directly on point on this, is John 1, the Gospel of John, chapter 1, the very beginning of it. And it actually begins... In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. He was in the beginning with God. So, so Jesus is the Word. Pretty much nobody disputes that. That When it says Word, it's talking about Christ. And He was there at the beginning with God, before anything was ever made. Because we go into verse 3 and it says, All things were made through Him, the Word, Christ. 
and without him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. And then if we skip to verse 14, it says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory, the only glory as of the begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. So John is trying to just really hammer home here in so many ways that Jesus is God. He is, he is our creator. When we read the words in the very beginning of Genesis, it's Christ that's speaking us into existence. He's the one who says, let there be light. Who can then pronounce something and make it actually happen other than God? And so we go to 1 Timothy 3.16. Maybe we could put that up. 1 Timothy 3.16. And now Paul is confirming similarly that, and without controversy, there's no controversy, Great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. God, God was made in the flesh and justified in spirit, seen by angels, preached among the Gentiles, believed on in the world, received up in glory. Who can this be describing? Nobody other than Jesus Christ. And we go on to Colossians 2. Sign at verse 8 to 10. It says, Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principle of the world, and not according to Christ. For in him dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Mm -hmm. And you are complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. So here we're hearing about how all of the power, all the fullness, everything that makes God God of the Godhead is in Christ bodily. Christ can take on physical form. He can walk around. He can dwell with us in the flesh. And yet everything that makes God God is within him. And what does Jesus say about himself? I mean, so we, we've seen what Paul said. We've seen what John said. What does Jesus say of himself? He says in John 10 verse 30, I and my Father are one. How can they be one if they were are not both God? And in John 8, 58, Christ says, Before Abraham was, I am. And when the Jews heard that, wow, that's got to be shocking because they know when anybody claims to be I am, the I am, that is pointing to God back in Exodus 3 who appeared to Moses at the burning bush. Because when Moses says, who are you? He says, I am. So Jesus there is saying, I was that I am. I was the one who spoke to Moses. I was the one who spoke to Abraham. If we go to Luke 5, 20, um, in that story, you have the paralytic who shows up and he's, crippled he's he's looking for healing but what's the first thing jesus says to him he says man your sins are forgiven and what happened what's the reaction of people in there the scribes and the pharisees begin to reason saying who is this who speaks blasphemies who can forgive sins but god alone they know that they know only god has a right to forgive sins but here jesus said your sins are forgiven so it, 
there should be no question in anybody's mind. Jesus is God. There are so many other verses. Um, I try to hit some of the main ones here just to give you an example of it. Now, uh, Shuja, sorry if I mispronounced it, asked a second question, says, is God perfect? I'm wondering if you're asking that question, Shuja, because of this verse, Luke 18, 19. And it says, so Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good that is except God. So some people take this verse as Jesus suggesting that he is not good. Why is this person coming up and saying, uh, Jesus, you're good when really, oh, it should be someone else, just God. I'm not God. But is that what Jesus is really doing there? So many people take Jesus's questions to prompt people to think as somehow a statement of a fact when they're not. If you go back even to Genesis, uh, Genesis 3, God goes looking for Adam and Eve. It says, hey guys, where are you? Does God not know where they are? Or is God asking a question that's going to prompt him to think or prompt him to do a certain action? Jesus all the time does that. The woman who reaches out and touches him to be healed from her bleeding of 12 years, Jesus turned around and says, who touched me? Is it because he didn't know who it was or he wanted her to step forward in faith? So that's the same thing here. Jesus wanted him to think about why, why he said you're good. Why, why say Jesus is good? Does he really believe Jesus is God? And, and then is God really perfect? Yes. Matthew 5, 48 says, therefore you shall be perfect just as your father in heaven is perfect. This is what Jesus is saying. We too need to be perfect. But does that mean you never make a mistake? That word there, perfect, in the Greek, that, or what we call perfect in English, means more like complete or whole. So it's important there to also say, yeah, what do we mean when we say, is God perfect? Are we perfect? Mm -hmm. um, I think another thing to think about in terms of is maybe when we think perfect, we probably think holy, right? Holy, support, part, different. Um, Luke, tw uh, sorry, Leviticus 2, sorry, Leviticus 21, verse 8. Maybe you could put that one up. It says, therefore you shall consecrate him, talk about the high priest, for he offers the bread of your God. He shall be holy to you, for I am the Lord who sanctifies you. I am holy. And Hebrews 4, verse 15 says, For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but was in all points tempted as we are, yet without sin. This is maybe another way of thinking about what's perfect. Maybe we're thinking sinless. So God is sort of the opposite of sin. He's like anti-sin. The difference between matter and anti-matter, God is kind of the anti-matter to sin. And... Here, Christ was without sin. I mean, if we're looking at that as a measure of perfect, I, a measure I would use, I would say, there we go. Christ is perfect. Christ is God. God is perfect. God is whole. God is complete. God is holy. Whatever you think it is, I think God is as good as you can get. What are your thoughts, Tina? I, I totally agree. And I love that verse that you picked, the first one, because whenever I think, is Jesus God? Absolutely. John 1. 
um, is the, the big one. And just to show you also in the Old Testament, it also confirms this because I always, um, you know, sometimes people are like, oh, that's just New Testament doctrine or something. But it's always good to have everything uh, in the New and the Old Testament. And if you look at Isaiah mm -hmm. chapter 9, verse 6, it's a I love this verse. It's so beautiful. It's a beautiful uh, messianic prophecy about Jesus. And it reads in um, Isaiah 9, 6, for unto us a child is born, obviously Jesus, unto us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And you might think, well, why does it say this son is the Everlasting Father? It's because he's one with the Father. And so just um, to confirm, you know, what you're saying, you know, that Jesus absolutely is God. There's no question about it. God's people knew about it in the Old Testament, and then Jesus fulfilled it, as you can see in the New. Yeah, and actually, what's interesting, you talk about Jesus is one with the Father. This is something that trips up people, too, where the word, or I forget what the word is, but the Jews, one of the most important verses was God say, Oh, hear, O Israel, your God is one. And that word one, though, actually means a, you know, a group of things that together make one whole thing. So, for example, uh, when it says the evening and the morning were the first day, you have two things, the evening and the morning, two parts. And actually, actually, it says not first day, it says we're one day. Mm -hmm. One, that same word there, one, two, and, and a man and a woman shall become one flesh. They're two, but they are one. And so that's the same concept there um, where God is one. Amen. And I, I always think, yeah, when people get tripped up like, oh, God is one, but why is there multiple, you know, God, Father, God, Son. But, um, you know, God, like you're saying, is um, it's like a family, the Godhead, you know, the Father and Son. They are one in, in purpose. They're one in, you know, their motivation. They're one in character. Um, and God never refers to himself as just a sing in singular form. He always refers to himself as a plural, like you read in Isaiah chapter six, verse eight. And it says, also, I heard the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? So again, it's this idea of us. And that's why um, it's so Let important. us make man in our own image. Yeah, exactly. In Genesis yeah. and the creation story. Exactly. It's a, another great example. And so God, um, you know, understands family. And I think that that's such a huge thing to understand about God is um, God is the creator of family. And um, which is honestly one of the most beautiful gifts he's ever given us um, is the opportunity to, to be a family, um, spiritually speaking, as well as um, physically having a family as well. In fact, Jesus prayed, like, I want you to be one as the father and I are one. Like that's what he wants his family to be like. Uh, yeah, absolutely. Let's see. I'm... It's got to be in John. Forget which one. <laughs> which verse? That's okay. Um, I think it's... Is there a comment? I'm sorry. That's what we're checking. And by the way, you guys, the, as uh, Tina said at the beginning, this is live. If you have questions, if you have comments, drop them in. Uh love to see what other thoughts are coming to your mind, what other verses you're thinking of. And again, got questions. We'd love to answer those on the fly. Yeah, and good to see you, Olivia. Glad to have yeah. you here. Yeah, thank and, you. And uh, Fadi as well. 
Thank you for joining us. And if any of you are uh, anyone else who's watching, feel free to uh, put a put a comment in the chat to us. Let us know. We do try to monitor those, and uh, we'd love to hear from you. Um, and yeah, share it, share it with others. Invite others to tune in live and join us also. Yes. All right. Next so question. Right. All right. Yes. Our next question. Get that up. All right, so Gloria is asking, can Christians be cremated? Hi, Gloria. I think that is a really great question, and I think it's very relevant. Um, I do want to say, um, I hope this is not in relation to a loved one who maybe has passed away, um, but if it is, my heart goes out to you, and um, you know, I, my condolences go with you. Uh, may God be with you at this time. Um, but when it comes to cremation, you know, there's really not any, um, anything in the Bible that says you cannot, you know, like it, like it's going to affect your salvation in any way. Uh, there's nothing in the Bible that of anything of that sort. Um, and actually if you go, uh, to, uh, Genesis three nineteen, just talking about, you know, after sin came into the world, um, you know, we received a curse and death entered and in, it says, it reads in Genesis three nineteen you know, God says to Adam in the sweat of your face, you shall eat till you return to the ground for out of it, you were taken for dust. You are and dust. You shall return. So when we pass away, um, it says in Ecclesiastes, and I'll, I'll show you more clearly later that basically our breath or the breath of life, our you know spirit returns to God and our body is made of dust and it returns to the earth. So once we die, those two things are separated um, like it reads in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, um, just talking about, you know, what, what we are, we are a living soul or a living being. Um, if you want to read in Genesis chapter two, verse seven, it says, and the Lord formed man of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils, the bread of life and man became a living soul. So when we're alive, we are those two things put together, um, dust of the ground and breath of life. And together they make a living soul. And if you think about, you know, kind of how that works, if you think of like you have peanut butter and you have bread. Now, each of those things are fine on its own, but when you put them together, they make a sandwich, right? They make a totally different thing. Or like you have um, two um, oxygen and one hydrogen, or two, excuse me, got to do chemistry, two hydrogen, one oxygen, you put them together, they make water. So, you know, just as those things together and only when they're together, make a completely new and different thing. But when they're separated, um, they no longer make that thing. So like I said, you know, when we die, our bodies be go back to the dust. And so as far as, you know, being cremated or being buried, it really doesn't matter because you're going to end up being dust either way. Just cremation makes it happen a little faster. Um, so we're our bodies are going to decompose. That's how it works, how it goes but you know it's only in the new heavens and the new earth god says he gives us a new body and uh, so it doesn't matter what happens to this old body <laughs> we're done <laughs> thank god and god will give us a new body that will never have disease or pain or suffering or any of those things that happen on the earth and so one last thing i do want to mention just as far as kind of when you think about you know um passing away and you know your body now being, you know, basically the breath of life is separated from the body and God receives that spirit. Um, like it reads in Ecclesiastes chapter 12, 
um, verse seven. And so basically just, you know, God receives the spirit back, the, the body goes back to the dust. And I want you to just know something. Um, and I hope it's something of comfort to you. Um, at what it also reads in Ecclesiastes chapter nine, verse five, it says that, um, basically the living know that they shall die, but the dead know not anything. Um, and they have no more reward for the memory of them is forgotten. So just, I hope that you have a sense of peace knowing that if you've lost anyone, they're asleep, they're, they're resting in Jesus. They don't have to know what's going on in this earth and all the pain and all the suffering. Um, they don't have any part of that until the resurrection. And you read about that very clearly in first Thessalonians four, um, where it basically it says, um, if you go to first Thessalonians chapter four and beginning in verse, I'm sorry. Um, um, 13, if you uh, read first Thessalonians four, verse 13, and it reads, but do, uh, but I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, lest your sorrows be as others who have no hope. Thank God we have hope in Jesus. Amen. If you keep going to the next verse, it reads, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. So again, Paul is, you know, trying to comfort his people saying, look, there's a resurrection and those who sleep in Jesus, they will be resurrected on the last day. And if you keep going in the chapter, it reads um, now in verse 15. For this, we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means pre precede those who are asleep. So basically those who are alive when Jesus comes are not going to be going to heaven first. No, God is going to resurrect first those who are dead or asleep in Jesus. So they are sleeping until the coming of the Lord. Um, and you see this clearly as the, the verses go on. Um, like it says in verse 16, for the Lord himself shall descend from heaven with a shout um, and with the voice of an archangel and with the trumpet of God and the dead in Christ will rise first. So those who have died, who've passed away, they rise first. And it's such a wonderful and beautiful hope that we have in Jesus um, that we then those in verse 17, then we which are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we shall ever be with the Lord. And so I just want to um, say that word of comfort to you that, you know, it doesn't matter what happens to our bodies on this earth, you know, whether when we're living in it or after we die, if we're cremated or we're buried, um, that doesn't matter. What matters is that God has your name written in the book of life. And on the last day, um, you know, whether we sleep or whether we are alive and remain, um, the last day is when God will scoop up his people and gather them all to heaven. And um, we get to have our reward, which is to be in the presence of God and, and live forever with him. Uh, Jay or Wendy, do you have any other thoughts on that one? Yes. Yeah, so, you know, it's interesting, and I'm just looking at it right now. 1 Corinthians 15, 35, all starts off with, but someone will say, how are the dead raised up and what body do and, and with what body do they come? Mm -hmm. And so here, Paul is like directly talking about this. 
And he says, foolish one, what you sow is not made alive unless it dies. And what you sow, you do not sow that body that shall be, but a mere grain, perhaps wheat or some other grain. I mean, what he's saying is, for example, you, you plant a seed. Do you get that seed again? Or does it grow up into something different? Mm -hmm. okay. is, the, is the seed totally different than the plant that comes out of it? And so he's using this analogy about what our body is going to look like. Um, you know, and it, it keeps going and going and going. You know, there's all sorts of different types of bodies. And it says, uh, verse 42, So also is the resurrection of the dead. The body is sown in corruption. It is raised in incorruption. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown in a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. There is a natural body and there's a spiritual body. So, so I mean, what we're going to have on the resurrection could be totally different than the bodies as we understand it. Um, you know, so we don't need to be worried about where are the molecules that make up our current body right now are going to go because God's going to give us something that's going to be totally different. And that's what we could really look forward to as Chris, as uh, Tina was saying. Amen. Um, did you go down to verse 53 as well? Where it says this corruptible must mm. put on incorruption and this mortal must put on immortality. And just um, like it says also in verse 54 of that chapter. So when this corruptible shall have put on incorruption and this mortal will have put on immortality, then shall um, then shall be brought to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. So when again, Jesus comes and we are resurrected, that the mortal, something that's able to die will no longer be able to die <laughs> because God will raise yeah. us up with those perfect bodies. And just like you're saying, um, you know, what there's does, a change. Mm -hmm. What does that mean for those who don't understand to that? This corruptible is put on incorruption or this mortal is put on immortality. Like, what does that mean? Sure. Um, Cause if you think of the word corrupt, that's something that's able to decay, right? That's something that's decaying. And, you know, when you or think about- Or there's a fault or there's a problem in it, right? Yeah, exactly. There's a fault. And the fault that's in us that's causing us to die is sin, right? <laughs> that's mm -hmm. that's the fault that's corrupted, corruption in us. And that, um, so when um, Paul is saying, you know, that this corruptible will put on incorruption. So basically we're going to have a body and a mind that is free from sin. And so we're not having that, um, you know, that basically um, like a drive um, or draw that we naturally have now to sin. Mm -hmm. that, those things that will be gone. Mm -hmm. exactly. and, and then also, yeah, your body is not going to, you're not going to have disease anymore. You're not going to break bones anymore. You're not going to have cavities in your teeth. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's all going to be totally different. Maybe we're going to be able to fly. Maybe we'll be more like the angels. Right? Jesus even said we'll be like the angels. Uh, when he says that, it's hard to know to what degree, right? But there's probably going to be a lot of similarities there. Oh, I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I hope awesome. so. But yes, and that, like you're, I'm saying, mortal must put on immortality. Mortal meaning, you know, you. you we all know we're going to die. Like it said in Ecclesiastes, the living know that they shall die. Um, but you know, and every day we know that we're decaying a little bit more every day, sadly. Mm -hmm. But thank God there's going to come a time when God is going to make all things new, just like he promises in his word. 
um, in Revelation chapter 21, verse four, you know, it says, and God shall wipe away all tears from their eyes and there shall be no more death, neither sorrow nor crying, neither shall there be any more pain for the former things are passed away. So thank God for his beautiful promises. Amen. 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 And that's a good transition now to our third question. Yes. Yes. Next question. Or is, that's the fourth question. We, yeah, this is, we have one question before this one. Here we go. Uh, oh. Oh. We're oh, missing they one. only have three. <laughs> no, uh -oh. there's, one more, there's one more question, but it's not on there. So I'll just go ahead and read it. Uh, anyway, which is, um, does, uh, does God kill or is it Satan when we, when we die, that is. So Kaya, Kaya Lethu, thank you for asking that question. Um, and this is a very profound question, right? Because some people, I think they, they feel like, okay, is God good if God would kill? And then it might say God will never kill. Um, and then there's also, I think, a problem where we attribute to God a lot of killing that isn't really attributable to God. So um, let's take a look at this. Um, so first off, I want to step back and, and let's talk about this concept of life and why does anything live, right? And we, we read in uh, first, or John 1, right, where... Um, you know, God is the creator of everything and Christ is a source of life for everything. Uh, John eleven twenty five, Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, shall live. And then 1 John 5, 12, he says, he who, shall, he who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son does not have life. But God is life. We have to be connected to God. Uh, God in the Old Testament and then Christ in the New Testament uses the imagery of a vine or a branch connected to a tree. And what happens when you cut a tree? I mean, we're, we've been doing a lot, a lot of uh, trimming lately, right? Mm -hmm. Of our trees. What happens when you cut that branch off? Well, that that branch dies, but the rest of the tree gets stronger and more yeah. productive. Yeah, that's true. Oh, and that has some interesting implication for what we're talking about. So yeah, that branch that's cut, cut off from the, the tree is going to die. And, and that's how it is in a sense with God. God, if God is life, when we separate ourselves from God, we're separating ourselves, we're cutting ourselves off from the life, the source of life. And just naturally we will die. Um, let's look at, uh, Deuteronomy 30 verses 19 to 20. And here, this is God speaking to the Israelites. I call heaven and earth as witnesses to you uh, today that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Therefore, choose life that both you and your descendants may live, that you may love the Lord your God and you may obey his voice and that you may cling to him and he is your life and the length of your days and that you may dwell in the land which the Lord swore to your fathers. So God is emphasizing you have a choice to make. Mm -hmm. You have an option. And this, this choice, this option was always there, even at the very beginning. Genesis 2, 16 to 17, God told them, Adam and Eve, you know, you could eat any tree you want, 
you know, any of the fruit, except it says in verse 17, but of the tree of knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. So God warned them, you know, you could do whatever you want, but the consequence of disobeying me, of not listening to me, of going your own way is going to be death. Life is conditioned on our obedience to God. That is the everlasting covenant. And, and then we go on to Genesis 3, 22. Did, we, did Adam and Eve immediately die? People struggle with that, right? The day you uh, sin, you shall surely die. They didn't just immediately drop it. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of reasons for that. Um, God immediately put in place the plan of salvation um, to put them on probation. But we also have this going on. Genesis 3, 22. Then the Lord said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord sent him out of the garden of Eden to till the ground. Uh, verse 24. So he drove out man and he placed cherubim at the east of the garden of Eden and a flaming sword to guard the way to the tree of life. Why would God do that? Why would God guard access to the tree of life? And in fact, that was answered earlier in verse 22. Right? He said, man is sinful, and I don't want man to live forever anymore, so I'm going to cut them off from the tree of life. Mm -hmm. And in fact, um, what's interesting, we were just talking about the we'll get new immortal bodies. That immortality is not in us. Uh, if you go back to, or flash forward to the book of Revelation, I think it was Revelation 21, we're now told that we have access to the tree of life again um, when, we're, when we join Christ in the kingdom. That's how we're going to be restored. We're constantly depending on God as a source of life, and we're given that because of our obedience to God. Mm -hmm. Now, does God, so God can kill, in a sense, by cutting us off from himself, or we cut ourselves off from him, and he doesn't want evil to just live forever, because evil eventually degenerates into something that's awful for the one who's evil and awful for everybody else around who is evil. Um, uh, Genesis 19.24, Sodom and Gomorrah. Who destroyed and killed Sodom and Gomorrah? Good question. Yeah. And a lot of people pass over this. Uh, you know, God warned... Adam and Eve, like, you know, I'm going to destroy it. But in Genesis 19, verse 24, it outright says, Then the Lord rained brimstone on Sodom and Gomorrah. God rained it. Like, this fire was coming out of him, and that's what destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So God was the one who actually brought an end to those absolutely horrible, wicked people. We've talked about them before. Um... You know, if you're struggling with the issue of why did God actually destroy Sodom and Gomorrah and the pre-flood people, why did God do that? Please go watch, uh, this probably about a month ago now. Look at our earlier video and watch that. Because there's good reasons why a loving God would do that. And he did it. And I think I talked about the analogy of, of uh, like Old Yeller. If you've seen that old film of this dog that saved the family 
But as a result of saving a family, he got rabies and became this uh, vicious, vicious beast that was no longer itself and had to be put down by the dad. I mean, that's kind of the love that then destroys. And so God's not torturing people for never and ever. He's destroying. They need to be wiped out. And that's what he does at times. And it's the same thing. We're told that the what happened in Sodom and Gomorrah is an example of what's going to happen in the future when God destroys all the wicked um, that we see in Revelation 20, verse 15. And says, and anyone not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. And maybe that fire is lava that's in the earth, but also I think, I think a part of that is going to be God's presence. God's glory is a consuming fire. That's the term Moses uses to describe God. And when God really appeared in his glory on Mount Sinai to the, uh, the Israelites, it was fire that was seen by them. This is, it's like this purifying fire that purges. And so maybe you, what, what's the verse, Tina? Isaiah is at 33, um, where it talks about who can dwell in the everlasting flames. Uh, I'm not, uh, I, I couldn't tell you off the top of my head. I was thinking of another verse to kind of add to what you're saying though. Mm -hmm. Is that, if that's okay? No, please. Uh, give me time to find the other one. <laughs> All right. Perfect. <laughs> we'll tag team. Um, so basically, you know, I think it's really interesting when you think about, you know, Sodom and Gomorrah. And yes, God did rain fire. God did do that act. And God talks about destruction being a strange act. And I don't know if that's kind of what you're getting at too. Um, mm, but yes. when, when um, you look at, you know, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, Jude in the book of Jude in the New Testament gives some light into that story in verse seven. So Jude one verse seven says, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner, giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. So basically, um, I think it's very interesting because a lot of times people think, you know, you know, if you go to the lake of fire, you're going to burn eternally. But it says that the eternal fire burned up Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, if you go to, you know, Sodom and where Sodom and Gomorrah would be today, um, they found, you know, a, a what looks like would have been a city um, that's just covered in sulfur, balls of sulfur. And so they, they really think that that's probably where Sodom and Gomorrah was because there's just these huge balls of sulfur from some extremely hot <laughs> substance that just yeah. burned up this the city and you know you don't see fire raining down from heaven today you don't see that this fire just kept burning but rather this eternal fire it means that everything was burnt up eternally it's never going to be resurrected it's never going to live again and so um i just think that's very interesting you know as far as you know, when you're, you're talking about Sodom and Gomorrah and, you know, destruction happening, um, it's not that God is sadistic and burning you forever, because that doesn't make any sense for you to live, you know, 50, 60, 70 years and burn for eternity. That's, that's everlasting life that he's giving a sinner, but it's just in torture. And God doesn't say that. He says the wages of sin is death. Um, so just... Yep putting that in perspective, but the gift of God is eternal life to through Jesus Christ, our Lord. So mm -hmm. anyways, just throwing that out there. You know what? Well. Here's maybe another possibility of what Bible means too, about the everlasting fire that consumed uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. Cause whenever it said it came from God. Mm -hmm. So if we, I found the verse I was talking about earlier, Isaiah 33 verse 14. 
Isaiah 33, verse 14, let's put it up, because this is one of the most shocking verses, I think, to a lot of people. And it says, the sinners of Zion are afraid. Fear, fearfulness has seized the hypocrites. Who among us shall... So they're asking the question, right? This is the, the, the wicked people, basically. Who among us shall dwell with, with the ever... Sorry, the devouring fire. Who among us shall dwell with everlasting burnings? And what this is referring to, going back to what I talked about, Moses said, our God is a consuming fire. Glory of God is fire. And this verse, Isaiah 33, is asking, who can stand in the presence of God? Who can dwell in his glory? If you, The wicked cannot stand. They cannot get close to God, else they could be just simply obliterated. And that's what we have here is this, this this concept here that it's just God just being God, not holding back his glory that can consume and destroy. And maybe that God sort of let his uh, glory a bit uh, torch Sodom and Gomorrah, those everlasting fires from him. And they were also unquenchable. So we've asked a, we've answered half of the question now, which is, does God do killing? Yes, God has the right to do it because God is life. There would be no life if it wasn't for him. Uh, but does Satan kill? John 8, 44 says, You are of your father the devil, and the desire of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth. So here Jesus is, say, is saying the devil is a murderer. Mm-hmm. From the beginning, who, I mean, you could say Satan was behind Cain killing Abel, Mm -hmm. but also probably from the beginning, he wanted to kill Jesus and ultimately did that. John 10 verses 8 to 10. All who ever came before me are thieves and robbers, Jesus says, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved. And he goes on and says, the thief does not come except to steal and to kill and to destroy. And um, this is a verse we come to often, Tina cites a lot, because it is a great verse describing Satan. He is a thief that comes to steal and to kill and to destroy. That's what he wants to do. That's his objective for all of us. He wants to hurt God. And I'm Whereas, sorry. I'm sorry. Go ahead. <laughs> I'm sorry. I just no, no, had like no. a, a, a bling, you know, those moments where you just, a light bulb comes on and you're... Oh, like, you got to interject then. <laughs> sorry. Um, no, I want to hear it. Uh, so I just kind of noticed something um, when you were mentioning in John chapter 8, verse 44, that Satan was a murderer and a murderer from the beginning. Um, mm. And Satan, because we established that God does kill but um, like it says in Isaiah 28, 21, that, you know, this is strange work, that it's a strange act. It's not like God to kill. That's not what God does, but mm. he will bring forth judgment and righteous judgment. And sometimes that means destruction of, of a sinner just so that they don't keep on sinning. Um, but Satan is a murderer. A murderer is someone who kills innocent people. And that's Satan. That's what Satan does. Satan is a murderer. He doesn't care how righteous or good you are. He wants to kill you, especially if you're good. But Mm. God is like, no, please don't, don't sin. I don't want you to die. Like you were reading that verse earlier 
um, from Ezekiel, it says, you know, why, you know, basically God's pleading with his people, don't choose sin, don't choose death, choose life. So God is desiring life for his people. And he only, um, you know, does the strange act of killing for the purpose of judgment and to protect, you know, the innocent, whereas Satan is killing, but for the purpose of, you know, to, to just cause harm to us. And, and like you're saying to God. Um, so it's kind of, you mm -hmm. know, just that dichotomy of, you know, yes, they're bringing death to pass, but for what purpose and, and what's the motive behind it? And, and you know, what's interesting is that let's sort of connect these to a, a slightly related thing, which is Romans seven eleven. It says for sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me and by it killed me. So Satan can take advantage of God's law, which says, if you sin, you're going to die. And he uses that now against us. Yeah. Satan is trying to tempt us, trying to get us to sin mm -hmm. so that we will be condemned by God's law. Yeah. And so that we ultimately will be destroyed in the judgment. That's his objective. He, that's the easiest way for Satan to kill as many people as possible, to rob God of as many family members as possible. Mm -hmm. And, and this is, this is how now, um, in a sense, yeah, wicked sin has power through the law. Mm -hmm. um, and this could be a confusing concept when you're reading Romans, and this is what Paul is trying to tell us. And if you look at Romans 5.21, it says, So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life through Christ our Lord. And, and we have this dichotomy. So sin is what's leading to death. Sin is is death in a sense. Wages of sin is death. Sin takes you there. Sin is separating you from God. God is life, though. If we get close to God, we approach God. He ever wants us to wants to save us. So it says, even so, grace might reign through righteousness to eternal life. Or, or, or even so, they say, yeah, grace. Let grace reign. Mm -hmm. Let grace save. Mm -hmm. And so we have, uh, I think, some comments we want to get to, right? I have some great uh, comments. Uh, go ahead. Uh, Bill Omar, uh, talking about decay, <laughs> gave us a, an example. Let me comb my decaying hair. That's <laughs> uh, so sad. Uh, and then we have a comment here from, I don't know how to pronounce your it name. It is Blaine. <laughs> Carino, we'll go with that. God bless you, ma'am, sir, and to your ministry. Thank you. We appreciate Thank you, that. Mr. Carino. Yes. All right. And we need to get to our next question, our fourth question. So we have some time to answer that one. Yeah. Uh, question number four. All right. So Israel is asking, is not the great city of Revelation 11 and 16 and 18 known as Biblical Mystery Babylon, all, all one and the same. If it is, then it is plainly Jerusalem. Would you not agree? Okay, my friend Israel. Well, that is an interesting question, and it sounds like you're doing some good study of the Bible. And so I definitely tip my hat off to you in that regard. Now, when it comes to the great city that you're quoting about, that 
city is mentioned in Revelation 17. Um, it's, you know, it's definitely the same in 16, 17, 18. All the, those three chapters together talk about this great city, Babylon. And it, it goes into detail. But when it comes to Revelation chapter 11, um, that's a different city that is being talked about. So um, something I want to just kind of clarify, when it comes to the book of Revelation, um, it's written in a chiasmic um, form, meaning that it, everything kind of builds and um, climaxes in the center, which basically the, the main focus of Revelation is Revelation 12, in essence, because it just kind of goes back to why is there, why are things going on the way they are in the first place, which is, you know, basically that G, there's a conflict, there's a great controversy between Christ and Satan, between good and evil. And so um, we're, and we're just kind of caught in the middle of that here on this earth. And so when you're looking at Revelation 11, it's actually a very interesting um, chapter because it talks about measuring um, this temple. And if it, I know that it mentions a city in verse, let's see, Revelation 11, verse 2, it, it speaks about the holy city. And so if you want to read that real quick, but it says, but leave out the court, which is outside the temple. So he was measuring this temple. It says, do not measure it for it has been given to the Gentiles and they will tread on the holy city underfoot for 40 and two months. So basically that holy city, yes, I would agree, um, is symbolically at least Jerusalem. So yes, that would be Jerusalem. Absolutely. Um, and I know, I think later in the chapter, I think in verse 13, it talks about, you know, a 10th of those in the city will fall. And so, you know, it, there's definitely a city going on in, in Revelation 11, and that would be um, Jerusalem, or like I'm saying, spiritual Jerusalem, um, basically where God's people are. But when it comes to Revelation 16, 17, 18, that is a very different city. And I really want to make that clear that this is definitely, absolutely not Jerusalem. Um, and I'll prove it to you. <laughs> So if you look in Revelation 17, verses 4 and 5, we'll read those. And Revelation 17, verses 4 and 5 state, it says, And the woman was arrayed in purple and scarlet. So this is a, an evil woman, adulterous woman, and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, having in her hand a golden cup full of abominations and the filthiness of her fornication. And if you keep reading in verse five, it says, and on her forehead, a name was written, mystery, Babylon, the great, the mother of harlots and the abominations of the earth. So this is not a good woman. And if you keep going in the book, of, or excuse me, in the chapter of Revelation 17 to verse nine, so Revelation 17, verse 9, it reads, Here is the mind which has wisdom. The seven heads are seven mountains on which the woman sits. So, um, and then again in verse um, 18, uh, just to clarify, and it says, And the woman whom you saw that is, is that great city. So this woman is that great city which reigns over the kings of the earth. So that woman that you see in Revelation 17 in verses four and five is Babylon, the mother of harlots. So spiritual Babylon, not literal Babylon. It's not some place in the middle of Iraq, spiritual Babylon. And she's full of fornication. She's full of all this, you know, this cup of wine that's basically false doctrine. And that's how she gets um, the kings of the earth drunk with her, her false doctrine. And we said, though, that here is wisdom in verse nine, that she sits 
on the seven mountains. And I want you to understand, I'm not attacking a person or people in any denomination, but I have to say that, you know, if you think of any city, go to Google, put in city on seven mountains or hills. Um, the Greek word for mountains in that chapter is oros. It means a hill or a mountain or a mount. The only city in the world that sits on seven mountains or seven hills is Rome. So it's basically this false system of worship based out of Rome. And if you, you know, deduct who or what that is, you know, that it's, it's very clear that that is not Jerusalem. This is a spiritual false system of worship. And again, I'm not attacking any people specifically in that, um, in this religious group, um, you know, if you read in Revelation 18, verse four, God actually says, come out of her, my people. So there's many, many, many of God's people in this religious institution that God is actually trying to call out of this false system of spiritual Babylon, which Babylon meaning confusion, um, and which is based out of this system of false worship, of false doctrine that's um, that sits centered in the city of Rome. And if you if I hope this is pretty clear. If it's not clear, I'm going to tell you what it is. It's basically, you know, the Vatican in, in the papacy. And so I don't mean, again, to attack any person within this religious institution, but this is, um, you know, there there is false doctrine in, in this institution that um, that is widely received. However, it's not based on the Bible. And so what we have to do is, you know, we're not attacking any person, again, like I'm saying, but we just have to uphold the truth of God's word. And um, yeah, just know that <laughs> the cities in Revelation 11 and those in 16, 17, 18 are two very, very different cities um, doing very different things. Uh, Jay, Wendy, do you have any other thoughts on this one? Yeah, you know, it's interesting how the questioner said, is that Jerusalem? Because it, it, it's going to depend on what do you mean by Jerusalem? It's interesting that if you go back to the Old Testament, Look at how God describes his own people. For example, Jeremiah 3, 6. And it says, The Lord said to me in the days of Josiah the king, Have you seen what backsliding Israel has done? She has gone up on every high mountain and under every green tree, and there played the harlot. And I, I could just show you verse after verse after verse after verse where God is uh, comparing his people to a harlot to um, a prostitute using this imagery of how they're going about cheating on God, putting other gods before them or gauging in a false worship system. Mm -hmm. And so when you go to then Revelation and he's using a harlot again, who is the harlot cheating on? Who is Babylon cheating on? I mean, it's got to be someone who's supposed to be Christ's bride. This, this is supposed to be person who was in a, a covenant relationship with Christ and is now cheating on him. So, so you got to look at, look for and within God's people to find the cheaters. I mean, that's, you know, so just as in the Old Testament, it was God's people cheating on God. In the Christian church, it's Christians who are cheating on God that are part of the harlot system. Mm -hmm. uh, there's just the parallels between Old and New Testament are just astounding. And and so, yeah, it's not Islam. It's not Buddhism. It's not atheism. That's not what the New Testament is telling us to be worried about. 
we're told to be worried about what's within the church. And if you think how Satan works and how he wants to deceive us, he's going to give us the most deception where we feel the safest. Amen. And that's, that's um, the greatest truth I think we can give you. Just study your Bible. There's so many warnings there. Amen. Amen. And, um, you know, I think that's interesting that you're talking about, you know, Jerusalem being God's people and, um, and, you know, just the difference between God's people in Revelation 11 um, being, you know, Jerusalem in that, you know, Jerusalem is supposed to be a symbol of his God's people. Um, you know, like it says in Revelation 21, too, that, you know, John, I, John saw the holy city, knew Jerusalem. So Jerusalem was always supposed to be the city of God's people. And so um, I, I, I would say <laughs> be very careful to, you know, Say, speak anything against you know Jerusalem. I know that you know the literal Jerusalem here on this earth is um, you know not you know basically the place where you know anything special um, as far as you know God's presence doesn't live there anymore. You know Jesus said you know that there will be destruction and that happened in seventy A.D. with the destruction of the temple. You know, um, like uh, your house is now left unto you desolate. Exactly, Matthew. The, they were God's people, and you no. Know, yeah, exactly. And, but... and I have to say, what you just said was, boom, a light bulb moment for me when you said that why we have a new Jerusalem. I've always struggled, like, why is there a new Jerusalem? But you're right. In a sense, God had to, the original Jerusalem left God. They were his people. And they've left God. So now God starts with a new Jerusalem. Amen. That's, that's deep. Yeah. And it's actually interesting that it goes along so well with what you were speaking about in 1 Corinthians 15, um, like in verse 53 and 54, talking about, you know, this mortal must put on immortality, this corruptible must put on incorruption. So everything, like, you know, Jesus says in Revelation 21, 4, that all things will be made new. And so, you know, the, the old Jerusalem that, that messed up, that was supposed to show the world who God is, you know, they didn't, quite do that but God is making a new Jerusalem a new city for his people to dwell in and it's not made up of just this person in this church there's not one denomination that's going to have all God's people in it no God's people are in every church absolutely and there's people that maybe never even heard the name of Christ but their conscience speaks to them the Holy Spirit speaks to them and I really do believe that there's going to be people in heaven that maybe have never even heard the name of Christ but something in them knew that there was a creator and they desired um you know, something good or something better. Um, I always like, if, oh, sorry, go ahead. In fact, maybe it just dovetail what you're saying, like Revelation 18, God's talking about Babylon. It says, and there's a voice that's heard from heaven saying, come out of her, my people, lest you share in her sins. Mm -hmm. God, so God's saying that I got people in Babylon in, in the cheating on me, Jerusalem, mm -hmm. please come out of her, my people. Amen. Exactly. Amen. And it's not that, you know, um, that these, anybody in that, you know, church or religious system are bad people. Absolutely not. Half my family is <laughs> in that, in that church. And I love them. And I know their names are written in the book of life. I know that they're living up to as much truth as they know. And I believe that God sees that and, you know, sees their faithfulness and their sincerity. Um, but I think, you know, when it comes to truth and life, you like, if you read in Acts chapter 17, verse 30, and it says at times of ignorance, God winked. But um, if you want to pull that verse up, actually, it's really beautiful. Acts 17, verse 30. Mm. Um, 
truly these times of ignorance God overlooked or God has winked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent. So basically, once you know the truth, once you know, you know, what, what, um, what's right, you have to now, you know, take ownership of that and be like, you know, I, I, it wasn't that I don't know anymore. I, now I know. And so now I have to live up to what I do know and um, be faithful to that. And God will bless you for, for living up to that truth. And just one more last quick thing. Um, I just want to say, just um, like I'm saying, um, you know, God is love and God, loves everyone on this earth. And I just, you know, I thank God for his truth that he gives to us. And I just want to plead with you if anybody's listening and, you know, they might feel any anger or any indignation, like, why would you speak against this church? This is a good church. I'm not saying that there's not good in the church. Of course, there's good, there's truth. Um, But there's not there's things that are missing and there's doctrines in the church that are dangerous and that, that um, you have to be careful about because when it comes to the end time, when it comes to the mark of the beast, you have to be a revelation 14, 12 person, which says here is the patience of the saints. Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And that means keeping all 10 of the, of the commandments, including the fourth, which is seventh day Sabbath. Um, because God said it with his own mouth. He wrote it on stone with his own finger. And if God says, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, six days shalt thou labor and do all thy work. And the seventh day is a Sabbath unto Lord your God. Um, and, and in it, you shall not do any work. <laughs> Verse 10 and 11 go on in detail. Um, we really need to be understanding that that is so important because it says in Daniel seven twenty five that this power, this Babylon um, beast power will seek to change times and laws. And this power has done away with literally took out the second commandment as well as changed, um, the 10th commandment split into two and literally changed this, the sacredness of the seventh day Sabbath to the first day of the week. So that's a really big thing to, to do with saying that the church has this authority to do it with. Um, and And we're talking about how, Sorry, and we were just talking about one of the aspects of God's ability to forgive sins. And what does the Babylon church say? You go through us to get forgiveness. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) And and that's a name of blasphemy, (laughs) frankly speaking, if you read in Revelation 13, verse 1. Um, So anyways, I don't want to attack anybody. Like I'm saying, I'm not attacking, um, you know, even this church in a sense, I'm not attacking anyone. I love them. I love (laughs) all people. But um, I just, I have to tell you the truth, just like a, you know, if a doctor knew that you were sick and had a, a deadly disease, would he not be a good doctor in, in telling you, you know, you're, you're sick, you have, you know, a tumor or would he just say, you know, take an aspirin, go home. Like, no, that's not fair to you. He has to tell you the truth. It might not be comfortable. It might not be easy to, to share. It's not, I don't enjoy sharing this, but I, you know, as a faithful witness, I have to, you know, share what I know and that's where this is coming from is a heart of love that mm-hmm. desires for you to be saved and to um, know all the truth so that, um, you know, you'll be ready for, for Jesus second coming. Amen. Anything well else? Said. Well said. That's it. That's yeah. our last one. So, yeah. All right. Let's go ahead and close with a word of prayer. Um, Father in heaven, 
Lord, we thank you so much for your um, your Bible, your truth, and Lord, that you tell us, Lord, that this is wisdom. And God, we, we just pray that you will give us wisdom, Lord, for you are the source of all wisdom. And God, we ask and pray that you will continue to guide us and lead us. Um, forgive us, Lord, for any sins we've committed, Lord. And um, Lord, you say that we will hear a voice behind us um, telling us where we should go, Lord, whether we turn to the right hand or the left, God. So just lead us in your will. Lead us in your truth by your Holy Spirit. For we ask and pray these things in your son Jesus' holy name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. All right. Thank you guys thank for you. tuning in. And again, um, if you have questions that you would like answered here on our show, feel free to check us out on our website at BibleAsk.org forward slash live. And that's where you can leave us a question and we will be sure to answer it um, on our next week's show. Thank you so much and God bless.